orange uh, here at Lamar Avenue. And Jared and I really appreciate uh, the positive uh, comments that we have received the past uh, couple of weeks. We really don't appreciate the negative comments. But you know, we haven't heard any, so that is good. Uh, in fact, yeah, turn your mic on so you can say all, something. All the negative remarks I've gotten have been from you, though, so. Not supposed to say that. We really especially appreciate some of the gifts we've been getting. I just noticed this a few minutes ago, and I love these little orange slice candies. And the note says, orange, you glad you're here. So thank you, whoever gave this. It's on my chair, so it's to me, I guess. You can have that. <laughs> there is a story with this. I believe it was Tuesday morning. Someone knocked on my door, Jared or someone and said, hey, there's a delivery for you. And I go out and there is a gentleman and he really didn't say anything. I, he, he wasn't dressed as a postman, a UPS guy or anything. I, I think he just was grabbed from the street for all I know. And this was given to me and said it was, it was my gift. And I opened it up there is yellow popcorn, there is red popcorn, and you put yellow and red together, and what do you get? You get orange. Thank you, Molly, for this gift. <laughs> Probably not the orange I would have chosen, and I have to tell you, I really think the delivery guy, whoever he was, was from Oklahoma, or Jacob, he might have been from College Station, because it was delivered to me like this. <laughs> I'll be nice. To this point in our uh, study, we have emphasized really two or three things. Uh, first of all, we have emphasized the importance family is. And of course, the importance of parents, grandparents, just really any adult who loves children, realizing the impact that each of us can have upon our children, and especially spiritually speaking. But we've also emphasized the church, that the church too has a role to play in supporting families and supporting parents and doing all we can as the church, the body of Christ, as an extended family to support parents, to better equip parents uh, as they raise their children. And so we've suggested that the church represents uh, the color yellow, the bright light that we are to be. And a couple weeks ago when we introduced this series, we referred to Matthew chapter 5 where Jesus says that you and you only, church, are the light of the world. 
And then we chose the, war, uh, the color red to represent the family and especially a heart and the love that is to exist uh, in the immediate family. And we've made the point that when you bring red and yellow together, that you create orange. And so we've been talking about how we can think orange by bringing the family and the church together to have a greater impact upon our families. And one of the texts that we have been emphasizing to this point in our study, and we'll continue uh, to emphasize, is from Deuteronomy chapter 6. And we'll have some more things to say about that as this series uh, continues. And I really, really appreciate uh, uh, the father-son teams that have been helping us uh, to deliver these lessons and have been uh, involved in our worship uh, assemblies. And so last week, we, we especially emphasized family. And so this morning, we want to especially emphasize church. This past week, I came across I, what I thought was a very interesting article by uh, a man named Chris Surrett. Surrett is a church consultant, a church coach. He's written a couple of books on small group ministry. He is currently an advisor for Lifeway Publishing. But he, in this article, he is discussing discipleship. And he is especially focusing upon how Jesus taught his followers how Jesus interacted with his disciples and better equipped them. And Surrett, in this study, sees four kinds of groups that we need for discipleship. And again, he, he sees all four of these types exemplified by Jesus. The first group is what he calls the group of two. This is where it is one-on-one -on -one teaching or mentoring. And, and the importance for, for all of us perhaps to have that dear brother or sister, that, that very close friend in the Lord that we can go to from time to time just in a one-on-one -on -one basis and share together and encourage each other. He then suggests that there is a second group, which he calls the group of four. And here he is especially remembering that Jesus, among all of the folks that followed him, there were three that he appears to be especially close to. And that, of course, Peter, James, and John. And so Jesus, uh, being the fourth of, of this group, spending evidently a lot of time particularly focusing upon their discipleship. You might be ahead of me by now. The third group, the group of 12, where Jesus assembles 12 disciples. And by the way, uh, Surrett and other church growth or small group experts will tell you that is the optimal size for a small group, 12. So it's, it's, it's very, very biblical. And it's in a group of 12 where, again, teaching, discipling, sharing, encouraging, equipping can take place. But then there is a fourth group that maybe we often forget. 
And it's the group of what Surrett calls many. The group of many. Even though Jesus spent some one-on-one time with his followers, and even though he spent time with Peter, James, and John, and more time with the twelve collectively, we also read in all four Gospels where Jesus also spent uh, a sufficient amount of time with large groups or large, uh, a large assembly uh, as people gathered to hear him speak and preach. And then, of course, we know that on uh, the day of Pentecost, uh, this group became the church. When we think about Deuteronomy 6, and as we continue to emphasize some principles from that text, let's also remember that the context of that passage in which God, through Moses, addresses his people, it really begins in chapter 5 when Moses calls all of Israel together. And so Deuteronomy 6 is given to a large group. And it was to be taught and lived out in community. This is the way Reggie Joyner, the author of Think Orange, explains it. Our children need to hear other adult voices other than their parents for their spiritual development. We widen the circle by elevating community or emphasizing the importance of being church together. He goes on to list at least six things, six positive effects of elevating community. Number one, when, again, church and family work together. Parents feel supported, not alone, in trying to have moral and spiritual influence with their children. Number two, the church is characterized by meaningful and significant relationships, not superficial ones. We reproduce a generation of Christians who are able to develop authentic relationships easily. Students, our children, will pursue counsel from Christian mentors rather than from unhealthy relationships. Number five, leaders discover their potential to make a lasting investment in someone else's life, particularly those who are younger. And then finally, number six, when a church works at elevating community, it really does something that culture cannot match. And so as we continue to talk about thinking orange and and bringing the church and family together, I want to suggest this morning, before uh, Jared has some things to say, a strategy, four things that we can do to help elevate community. Number one, church leaders assume a high level of responsibility for the spiritual formation of our children and students. Number two, back to that group of 12, small groups are valued and championed at every age level. Number three, an effective group or community experience becomes a primary goal of every single ministry. And programs, the things that we involve ourselves in as a church, are viewed as steps 
toward that goal. And then finally, number four, parents value church leaders as partners in teaching and modeling truths to their children. Jared? Go ahead and uh, turn your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10. And we're going to look at our, our famous verse here, verse 25, but before we do, I want to think about the, the context, the, the, the attitude in which we read Scripture. Uh, kind of similar to when you send out a text to a friend, you can kind of put your own tone to how they said it or wrote it. And so the, the context, the tone I want us to hear, Hebrews 10.25, I want it to be different than maybe what you heard growing up. Thou shalt not forsake the assembly, right? <laughs> I want a different tone this morning as we read 10.25. So let's start in verse 19. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way open to us for, for us through the curtain that is his body. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Verse 23, let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess. For he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day approaching. So this verse here, the tone is this urge to be together. That we remember what God has done for us and we come together and we, we, we encourage each other. There's something that takes place in community. It is said that a, a, a kid who reaches young adulthood has twice as more of a chance, two times more of a chance to stay within the church if they have a meaningful relationship with another adult inside the church, outside their youth minister or minister. There are nine out of ten students who, who left the church in young adulthood were not connected to an adult as a mentor outside of their ministers. There's something that takes place in community. Something that, that happens that, that, that God uses different relationships to spur and encourage one another on. It kind of looked like this for me. So I was 18 years old, and it was the second, almost approaching the second semester of my senior year. Uh, Bowles ISD had been the longest school that I had gotten to stay at, and my parents had thought about taking a job in Alabama. My dad wanted to go into preaching again. He missed the, the traditional ministry. He had been in the children's home for a while, but he, he had decided he wanted to get back in the pulpit. And so they had a decision to make, to uproot me and, and, and take me with them to Alabama. No offense, coach, but I didn't want to go. 
I wanted to graduate with my friends that I had established. I wanted to stay home. And so they let me stay. And a buddy of mine, Gary, who was 17 years old, I was 18 at the time, we stayed in this trailer. And when we moved in, we thought, this is crazy. Our parents or my parents were letting us stay alone by ourselves. Later on in life, I would think, wow, that was crazy. My parents thought, <laughs> it's a different kind of crazy that, I, that came to my mind, right? But then later on, I realized my parents didn't leave me alone. I was in the community. HK and Jan Ballard, I worked with them my senior year in one of the cottages. And I would go to their, their cottage every day. And I would, I would hang out with the kids. I was just kind of there to do whatever they needed me to do. Most days I would show up just a little bit early before the kids got there. And I would sit on the front lawn with HK Ballard. And him and I would just talk. We'd talk basketball, we would talk school, we would talk whatever was going on. I would, I would sit there in the cottage that night and I would eat at the dinner table. And Jan would, would have conversations with me. And she would fix me a to-go plate to take back home to Gary. There was these two women out there, Sue and Lorreen. Sue Hatchell and Lorreen Wolf. They were, they were really mean to me. <laughs> More like tough. But they would have conversations with me daily, weekly. What, I, what was I going through? What was I up to? Was I staying out of trouble? Sue would have me over to her cottage, and she would take me into her kitchen, and she would go into her pantry, and she would get me groceries, and she would give me milk, and I would take the milk home, and me and Gary would have, have milk, and, and, and we would just shop out of her kitchen. Boyce and Peggy Taylor, a few years later, or a year later, when I had graduated, I still had not, wasn't sure what I, would, I was going to do. I was working at MHMR Hospital night shift, and so I ended up living in their cottage with them. They're an older couple. Their, their kids were past my age, and I would wake up, or I would get up in the mornings, or, or get home in the mornings, and boys would have woken up around 4.35 a.m., and he would be sitting there on his recliner, and he'd say, Jared, you want some breakfast? And he'd take these Jimmy Dean sausage uh, biscuits out, and he'd microwave them like he was cooking some big meal for us. <laughs> Two-day-old coffee, he would pour it in my cup, say, just add water and microwave it. It's good, I promise. <laughs> Worst coffee in the world. But I would sit down with boys, 6.30 in the morning, 7 o'clock in the morning, and we would just have conversation. When we moved here, sorry, when we moved here, we joined a life group. And there was one particular uh, life group that I remember. We were sitting there, and, and we stayed later because Robin and Russell were, were hosting. Anytime Robin uh, hosted, she always had really good dessert. So if I stuck around long enough, I could get extra dessert. So we're sitting in one of their back dens, and I'm on this chair by myself with my dessert where I wanted to be. And I look up, and my wife and my two daughters, and my girls were teenagers then, were sitting there with Robin, and they were just laughing and having just this wonderful conversation. I don't know what it was about. I was being safe of not listening. But they were just enjoying each other's company. And I look over, and my son, Gavin, who's about five years old, was sitting in Russell's lap, and Russell was showing some pictures of some deer and just 
having conversation and relationship was taking place because God does something in community and relationship. We'd go to family retreat and I'd see my son along with Nolan Spencer playing the Fowlers in a Wahoo tournament because there's something amazing that takes place in relationship and community. See, this isn't just an assembly. This isn't just a gathering of people to come and sing praises. This is a place where relationship has taken place. You're not just teaching a Sunday school class. You're getting to know some children so you can speak life into them later on. Wanda Roper taught my class when I was a little kid, taught my wife's class when, when, when she was young. And to this day, we remember her. We remember the conversations we had. My wife remembers baking cookies at her house. It's in those relationships and the community of believers that kids are reminded, not just kids, adults are reminded about what God has done, about the hope that we have. It's in those relationships that when we're, we're starting to kind of not sure where we should be going or what we should be doing, when we're going to go get milk out of somebody's fridge, that they ask us, hey, what's going on? Are you okay? And in that moment, God uses that relationship to remind us of what he's called us to do. It's in this community that we are invited into the resurrection of Jesus. Some of you may be familiar with William Lane Craig. Uh, Craig is one of Christianity's foremost apologists. And he regularly uses a, a phrase or a methodology to argue for the historicity of the resurrection. And it's called the inference to the best explanation. And here is what he means by this kind of argumentation. This method tells you which hypothesis to infer from available evidence. It argues you should infer the hypothesis that best explains the evidence. One piece of evidence that, that we have, one fact, I, I mean, you are living it out today by being here this morning. And that is the emergence of the church. And so what is the best hypothesis to explain that we are sitting here this morning and we have continued a practice that has been going on for over 2,000 years? What is it that best explains our existence today? What, what is it that best explains why Christians for 2,000 years in some parts of God's creation and throughout history have been willing to die because of their faith? Uh, some of you may have heard this morning 
of what occurred in Sri Lanka uh, when evidently some Buddhist extremists uh, bombed three churches and three hotels. And in last report I saw over 200 people, Christians, those who, who believe in Jesus and believe in the resurrection of Jesus have lost their lives. Now, what best explains that? What explains how the primary message of those first followers of Jesus centered upon and focused upon Jesus being raised from the dead? Recall the words of the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, beginning with verse 3. For what I received I passed on to you as of first importance that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. And then He appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. New Testament scholar N.T. Wright, in his book, The Challenge of Jesus, asked this question. Why... Did Christianity arise? And why did it take the shape it did? Wright goes on. The early Christians themselves reply, We exist because of Jesus' resurrection. There is no evidence for a form of early Christianity in which the resurrection was not a central belief. Nor was this belief, as it were, bolted onto Christianity at the edge. It was the central driving force informing the whole movement. If we continued to read through 1 Corinthians 15, Paul would make the claim that if Jesus did not rise from the dead, then we of all people are to be pitied because we are without hope. We are still lost in our sins. And so the resurrection of Jesus is indeed the epicenter of Christianity. And so in our context this morning, as we, as we are emphasizing family and we are emphasizing church and we're trying to elevate community by, by bringing the two together in unison to have a greater impact and influence upon our children. Parents, grandparents, those who love children, who have any kind of influence upon children, this morning, perhaps the most important thing we can instill in our children the most important thing that we can teach our students is Jesus not only was raised from the dead, He is still alive. 
and he is sitting on the right hand of God, enthroned upon heaven, reigning and ruling as King of kings and Lord of lords. And so parents, grandparents, again, teachers, those of us who love children, let's especially emphasize that message and instill within our children the importance of the resurrection and help them to understand its significance and even help them to develop in their own minds so that they can share with their friends good arguments that confirm the historicity of the greatest event in all the world. When on early that morning, when God, through again the power of His Holy Spirit, rolled that stone away and Jesus was alive. Paul puts it this way in Romans chapter 10 and verse 9. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and you believe with all of your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You think the resurrection is important? And so today is more than just dressing up real nice. It's, it's more than a good meal for lunch. It's, it's more than colored eggs. It's, it's even more than the wonderful, I can't wait to get home and open this chocolate Easter bunny that the Taylor girls gave to me this morning. And as good as that is and as much as I appreciate that, today, it's more than that. It's the fact that Jesus rose from the dead. And it's the fact that he is still alive. And he's in heaven watching over us. And the importance, the importance of instilling that fact in our children and in generations to come. So do you believe that this morning? Do you believe in your heart that on the third day, God raised him from the dead? Your salvation, my salvation, our salvation, our children's salvation depend upon that conviction that he really did rise. As we reflect upon the significance of that event this morning, I pray that all of us will seriously look into our hearts and just ask the question, do I really believe that? I mean, am I really convinced and am I really convicted? And am I living in such a way that demonstrates it? If you are subject to the Lord's invitation this morning, please come while we stand and sing.